The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. As a leading provider of PV inverter solutions across the world, SunGrow's delivered more than 10 gigawatts of inverters to the Americas alone and 154 gigawatts in total across the globe. SunGrow is also providing energy storage systems to some of the largest projects in the U.S., like the Chisholm Grid Project in Fort Worth, Texas. Chisholm Grid is a 100-megawatt standalone battery storage installation expected to start commercial operation in the middle of this year, providing energy and grid services to the growing Texas market. Learn more about SunGrow's energy storage solutions by emailing them at info at sungrowamericas.com. The Energy Gang is brought to you by SNC Electric. New technologies are unlocking innovative ways to solve power-related challenges. Conventional wired approaches may still be viable options, but they're not always the best solution. Today, non-wires alternatives like microgrids can provide more sustainable, resilient, and economic ways to deliver reliable power. SNC Electric Company has provided innovative power solutions for over 100 years. Learn more at snc.com/nwa. This is the Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. America's electricity system just faced another stress test as extreme heat taxed power plants and grid operators across the country. Is the power system ready for tomorrow's extreme weather today? Plus, what a secret recording of an Exxon lobbyist tells us about the oil industry's grip in Washington. And can we use natural gas pipelines to accelerate the low-carbon transition? Catherine Hamilton is my co-host. She's the chair of 38 North Solutions. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Stephen. I am recording from Culpeper, Virginia, in the mountains, where our general store is the bodega of New York City. And I'm thinking of bodegas because I'm obsessed with In the Heights these days. Uh, what do you mean the bodega of New York City? Well, it's like it's like the bodega, the rural version of that is the general general oh, store. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so do you just hang out in front of the general store? <laughs> Chewing on a straw of wheat. That's right. No, but like you can go in and get anything. You can go in and get motor oil or you can go in and get graham crackers or whatever you need. I am here in uh, New Hampshire visiting some family, which is why you might notice my mic quality is a little bit different. Uh, but yeah, we have the same thing going on. I grew up in rural New Hampshire and spent a lot of time at small general stores where you could get just about anything. <laughs> Dr. Melissa Lott is with us. You recognize her voice. She's been on the show a couple of times. She is a senior research scholar and the director of research at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. Melissa, how are you? Hey, Stephen. Hey, Catherine. I'm I'm great. I'm really thrilled to be on the show with Catherine on the show, too. I also am laughing because Culpeper, Virginia, is a place where some of my uh, friends when I was working at the Department of Energy and I went to run in a triathlon, and I still have the socks they gave us that have chili peppers all over them and say the Culpeper try. So um, I know where you are, which is really fun. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Melissa has a little recording secret. You're not there now. You look like you're in a regular room in a house, but you have been traveling the country in like an airstream. And when we've been recording together for another podcast we've been working on called The Big Switch, you were recording from an airstream. You had like a mini mobile studio. So you're, you're, you're back <laughs> yep. in Texas now? Yeah, I'm stationary. I'm not sitting on uh, on top of wheels at the moment. I'm on a, a concrete foundation, which is not normal when we record to do. And so 
Um, I'm in Texas in Austin. It's a slightly rainy day, which for a summer day in Texas is actually a gorgeous day because we need the water. We're always appreciative of it, but especially in the summer. Well, as I mentioned, Melissa is the host of The Big Switch. It's a podcast that we've uh, been developing together for for months, and it explores the benefits and trade-offs of the low-carbon energy transition. We focused on the grid in this first season, and it directly pertains to today's conversation. So you heard the first episode in a, in a recent cross post that we did. So go back and check that episode out. And we're going to dig deeper into the themes of that particular season because there's just so much going on right now with grid stresses and questions about how we continue to redevelop the grid with more renewables and low carbon resources, but also in the face of severe, severe weather that is happening more frequently. So it has been a very intense year for America's power grid. This summer's heat dome sent temperatures in Portland, Oregon to 116 degrees last Monday at a time when temperatures are usually in the 70s. British Columbia saw 113 degrees Fahrenheit. Across the Pacific Northwest, hundreds of people died. Cables on transit systems started melting. Roads buckled. Window glass shattered. There are tons of pictures of like buildings melting and glass breaking in the extreme heat on Twitter that I saw. And drought conditions just got worse in California in particular, making California's wildfire season start very early once again. Meanwhile, extreme heat also caused grid stresses in New York and in Texas, This follows the rolling blackouts in California last fall and the massive prolonged grid failure in Texas this winter. Grids everywhere are dealing with once-in-a-century conditions every few years now, or even every year. And just this week, California's grid operator said it needs to procure more resources because it expects more extreme heat this summer, and it just doesn't have the capacity to meet expected demand. So... How is the grid holding up in these conditions? What's working? What's not working? And are planners starting to think differently? Catherine, how would you grade the grid's performance during the most recent extreme heat wave? I know it was different in different regions of the country, but it was all happening at roughly the same time. So what grade would you give the grid? Yeah, so I think we have to grade on a curve. Um you know, I think of Texas as really bad, uh like a D. Um, I think of the Pacific Northwest as like maybe a B minus. Um, and then California is just all over the map. They can't decide what grade they're going to get. I think they do okay some days and terribly other days. And then I think New York City is also remains to be seen. Uh, honestly, when I talked about being obsessed with In the Heights, that entire movie is pegged to a blackout on New York City and it just makes you sweat watching it. But thinking about how different regions of the country and how different types of communities and different grid constructs react is really interesting. And uh, we were talking right before we recorded that since 2000, power outages in this country have increased by 67%. So this is only getting worse. And past is not prologue. I mean, we have to start thinking about the future because these climate events are absolutely increasing every single year, every single season, and now, as we can see, in every single part of the country. And we have to prepare for the future, not based on the past. Absolutely. So we'll dig into some of those grades and why they're different regionally. Um, I was reading an article in Recode about some of the grid stresses, and Kiri Baker, an engineering professor at the University of Colorado Boulder, averaged it out at a C-. minus. So, Melissa, given these different grades we're throwing around, how would you rate the performance of the grid in this recent event? 
Yeah, I mean, I think on a national level, at least across the lower 48, I'm, I'm going with the C minus and completely agree with what you're saying, Catherine, about it being different in different parts of the country. But part of the reason I'd say a C minus is because I actually think that given the tools that they had available, like grid operators had available, and given the state of the infrastructure that we currently have and the lack of planning kind of for what weather looks like today, what the climate will look like in the future, We've actually done pretty well that things haven't been worse, but I'm sitting in Austin, Texas, and I was here for those blackouts. So it's um, honestly, it's hard for me to not after that experience, given even lower grade. But that's, you know, that's where I'm sitting today. But I think C minus it's like, yeah, you're passing. You're, you're going to get your diploma at the end of the day, but you are on the cusp of academic probation and it is not good and you need to do something so you don't fall off the edge and everything get worse. <laughs> that's where I'm sitting. <laughs> I appreciate the extension of the metaphor here. Um, <laughs> so let's talk about the Pacific Northwest because that's where we saw the most extreme heat, this heat dome that swept over the Pacific Northwest up into Canada, down into California, just a very vast, prolonged event. But why did the Pacific Northwest do better than, say, California last summer or even Texas this summer? Uh, Catherine, what's going on there in the Pacific Northwest that made things a little less dire? Yeah, so I reached out to Janine Benner, who is the director of the Department of Energy in Oregon, and she runs the Efficiency and Renewable Programs, and they do policy. They don't do regulation, but she gave me some ideas. They do an energy report every couple of years, and they look a lot at resource adequacy. They look at what could happen in climate. Uh, she talked about how Portland General Electric has been thinking ahead um, because they got a little bit of practice last year on in the wildfires. They were trying to really prevent catastrophic impacts. Um, they figured out how they could purchase power, how to communicate with their customers to make sure that they looked out for each other, that especially since a lot of folks don't have air conditioning. It also happened that, you know, it was in June. So hydropower was more available. It's much worse later in the summer when the reserves are depleted. They're also connected to the region. So the heat wave was isolated to the Pacific Northwest, but they're connected to the region that was not suffering in the same way. So they were able to adjust is still hundreds of people died uh, from heat, which is really serious. I got heat exhaustion this weekend and it, it, it is not a good place to be. Um, and in places like that where there isn't a lot of air conditioning, they do have demand response programs and smart thermostat rebate programs that work really well. Um, but they still were seeing things that they really haven't seen to the point where cable car cables, uh, streetcar cables were melting. So, Melissa, how do you parse those factors out when you think about the Pacific Northwest in isolation? We've got a regionalized grid. We have more hydro available because it was early in the season. We have fewer air conditioners in the region. What else? Yeah, so I mean, we had this regional grid and we got lucky with having a lot of water in the reservoirs. Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that we saw like in California last summer is that there just wasn't more electricity to bring into the system because it was a regional heat wave, right? So it wasn't just that California was suffering, it was that all their neighbors who they normally would like go to and, and borrow a little bit of power, they couldn't do it. There was no more to get. And in Texas, I mean, there's a lot of different things we could pick apart you know, over the winter storm and the blackouts that happened there, but they aren't able to tap into their neighbors as easily as they would want to. So it was a regional cold snap, it was huge. It's It covered huge swaths of the United States, but also, 
ERCOT, like the Texas grid, couldn't plug into its neighbors. In the Pacific Northwest, there were a lot of different things that went right. I you know, agree they were able to communicate with their customers. They were able to actually get customers to flex their demand. That's great. You could have an argument there about shouldn't we be doing that in a more formalized way and actually having people be compensated for it. This idea of having fewer air conditioners, I mean, this highlights two things for me. One, I mean, the data are so clear that climate change is happening. We're going to expect more extreme events you know, in the future. We're already seeing them today. That means that over time, we will have more people buying those air conditioners. And is the power grid going to be set up to support those changing demand patterns, increasing demand over time? That means investment. Are we going to be able to do it? It also highlights just the need for more tools, <laughs> the need for more options. And this is something where when I give the grid a C minus overall right now, part of that is out of respect for the grid operators who were using every tool that they had in this case. And by the numbers, I mean, I was honestly, personally, I don't know about you, Catherine, I was surprised that the numbers were as low as they were, like kudos you know, to the response and a little bit of luck when it came to the hydro reservoirs. But those grid operators, I would bet money that if, if I'd been in the operating room with them, they would have been like, if I had another tool, I would be so glad to have it right now to use it. Yes, yeah, so it also struck me in Texas and California how linked all of our systems are. So in Texas, where you lost power, you were losing water and things were freezing and causing all kinds of issues because of the cold. And in California, you know, they have their whole bread basket of the United States in high desert. So they're either going to use surface water, dams and reservoirs, they're going to be pumping groundwater to make sure all those crops are growing well enough. And all of these systems are so closely intertwined that um, when the electricity goes down, it affects everything else in you know, all of those other ecosystems around electricity. 100%. I mean, the grid is so important to our health, which we can focus on when we read the stories about, you know, what California is doing for this next season of stress on the grid with, you know, deploying batteries to people's homes so they can keep their medical devices going, these types of programs that they're doing now after the blackouts last year. But you also have to think about the rest of the economy. And when the grid goes down, it pulls a lot of stuff with it. Um, and when the grid is stressed and you're asking for, you know, demand response, I mean, the biggest lever you can pull is around industry. It's around, you know, commercial or it's around the big users. Individual households are great. But when you can pull a bigger lever of an industrial facility, will that doesn't come without cost to that economy. It doesn't come without cost to us as consumers. Let's dig a little bit deeper into California and Texas. So let's start with California. Right now, wildfire season is already starting. You have 100% of the state that is in some level of drought. Hydropower resources are already drying up and being taxed. California has a major problem. And I referenced at the beginning of the show, just this week, the independent system operator said, we don't know if we're going to have enough capacity to meet expected demand throughout July and August. So they put out a call for more capacity, and it's unclear whether they can meet what they think demand will be. Meanwhile, there's still conflicts over how people are compensated for demand response there. And so while they have been successful in sending out alerts to folks and getting people to turn down their air conditioners or you know, turn down machinery and industrial usage, there's still a real problem with compensating people for that. And um, so California's got a lot of problems all at once. Meanwhile, it has so much renewable energy, which can be very helpful at certain times. But, you know, hydropower obviously has a, a, a drought problem. Uh, we saw in last year's blackouts, 
there were natural gas plants that shut down, but there was also a bunch of wind generation that went online. So like you could just walk through any number of factors related to grid management and resource availability. And California's got it all. So is California ready for the the weather of the future? Yes, it's interesting because they export in the winter and they import in the summer when when they have issues like this. Um, I talked to Jennifer Chamberlain that I work with. uh, She's at Sea Power and they do demand response. And I asked her, you know, based on last year, did they do more procurements for demand response auction and for resource adequacy? And she said, no, they did not. (laughs) Um, That they are trying to shore up generation. um, But instead, they're doing this emergency load reduction where you're paid for performance only for energy, not for capacity. They are allowing behind the meter resources um, like demand response to participate. But it's really um, not really optimal. What you would want is to have lots of procurements of resources that customers, as Melissa alluded to, where customers know in advance and they have easy apps to be able to reduce or that it's even automated for them to be able to curtail and cut by a little bit here and there, but where they're they're just vastly under-resourced in all of that in California because they haven't done that. And so now they're doing some emergency load reduction, but it's really not the same thing. And they'll try to get as much as they can from that. And it will help because people do respond in emergency situations, but they definitely could do better. Yeah. I mean, that's, they can definitely do better in the future and they can definitely have more tools to do better with. I mean, I was struck when I was just reading about everything going on in the Pacific Northwest when there was an article where they were talking about the extra cooling systems that they were deploying just to keep distribution systems from overheating. And they were highlighting one of my favorite nerdy things in power lines, which is about power line sag and what happens when it gets really hot out. I know that reveals me as a as a big nerd, but I think you guys already knew that. Um, but when you talk about it, you're like, if we are start planning for the climate we're going to have in the future, the climate we already have, where these extremes, like you said, Stephen, this isn't a once in a century thing. Like the blackouts in Texas, they're not even once in a decade thing. They're more frequent than that. And so when we start planning for that, there's so many levels that we need to think about. So in extreme cold here in Texas, we saw the integrated infrastructure we talked about, not just affecting you know electricity and water, but affecting gas pipeline infrastructure and not getting getting gas to power plants to supply electricity, these types of things. So it's just, there's a lot we need to understand better. And we don't start doing that until we do start planning for what we're already seeing today and even better what we're going to see in the future. So looking at not one problem happening at once, but looking at multiple problems happening at the same time, these things that we might have called tail events or once in a century events, well, they're not anymore. We got to look at them and then plan for them and invest so that we reduce the risk associated with them. Because a blackout is a dangerous thing for people's health. Even if you don't factor in all the economic impacts, it's dangerous for us. So we got to start investing and planning for the future that we're headed towards. Yeah. And my understanding, Melissa, is that in Texas, um, there was a bill passed through the legislature that the governor signed that now ERCOT, um, the grid operator and the Public Utilities Commission have to try to put into place. And part of it is weatherizing uh, power plants, which were told to be weatherized like 10 years ago, maybe, and maybe it'll take them 10 more years to do it. But part of it is also like, what are the resources that we can bring to bear? Like you say, what are the other tools? Can we increase demand response? Can we make sure that customers are really much more involved? I feel like we have this untapped set of tools out there um, that we really need to work on because we're going to have something before 10 years from now. Absolutely. And can we also do better mapping of our systems so that, you know, when a utility is thinking about 
what line they're going to cut off in a rolling blackout. They're confident they can bring it back. They also are confident they know exactly what's on that line <laughs> and what they're shutting off so that we can do that, you know, and have more granular response capabilities. I mean, that's it's really important in all this. There's so much in that Texas bill that we could go into. Um, one thing that I will highlight, though, if I had to pick one other thing, is just the treatment of different resources in terms of power plants and how they are um, discussed and what is considered reliable and what is not and the penalties that are you know, potentially being put against them. Because one thing that we saw in the freeze in Texas, what we've seen in these other black sites as well, is that every single power plant technology has risks and vulnerabilities. And it seems like the climate we're living in and that we're headed towards um, are hitting us across all those vulnerabilities, are making all those risks reality. So we didn't just have, you know, wind or just have you know, coal piles freeze or wind go offline because um, some blades froze, but we also had natural gas tripping offline. We also had nuclear trip offline. Um, so it's every single thing has a risk. That bill in Texas is interesting because ERCOT will now start modeling multiple simultaneous events and their impact on the grid at once. And previously, it you know, it was one event at a time. So I, I that does feel to me like a new and interesting thing in a place like Texas with uh, fewer rules than other grids around the country. Te- let's let's focus on Texas last before we kind of zoom out and do bigger picture to finish up this segment. Texas is an interesting case because it doesn't have what a lot of the other grids have. I mean, it doesn't have, it has minimal connectivity to the rest of the country. So if something bad happens in Texas, you can't import power from somewhere else. And that was a major factor in the winter outages. It's also a major factor in summer peaks as well. Uh, You didn't have, as you mentioned, Catherine, rules to weatherize power plants in the winter, even though Texas had faced multiple deep freezes in the last decade. And this lack of regulations um, was a serious problem and caused cascading outages and we we went through this actually in the big switch. Part of the whole series is based on the step-by-step accounting of what exactly happened in Texas. So, um, Melissa, any other thoughts on what makes Texas unique in its vulnerabilities? And how does that tie into the summer peak as well? Because Texas had a disaster in the winter. It's usually prepared for pretty heavy summer peaks, but already in the last couple of weeks, we saw the grid completely maxed out during this summer heat wave. So it doesn't matter the time of year, Texas has got some issues as well. Yeah, I mean, we've already had uh, very recently, we have our thermostat, it can be controlled remotely by Austin Energy here in Austin. And um, the number of times I've been on a Zoom call and been like, man, I'm glad I wore a tank top underneath the sweater today because, uh, you know, under my light cardigan, to be clear, you know, not a winter sweater. Um, it's, I, I've lost count and it's not, it's not even August, which is when I kind of expect a little bit of that. So this highlights the fact that even the things we thought our system was prepared for, uh, it's not as prepared as we want it to be. And the weather's getting more extreme, like things are changing. um, And we need to start evaluating the future. And it's great that we are starting to, as you said, here in Texas, look at, okay, not just a heat wave, but also a heat wave and a couple of, you know, power plants tripping offline and other things happening all at once. That's great. I think that, you know, one 
comment that came out of the Pacific Northwest was around how valuable it was. I think this was from Pacific Power. They talked about how valuable it was that they had high voltage transmission lines across, you know, that they could access 10 states worth of power resources. And that gave them so many generation resources to tap into. I think that one of the things that we risk in how we're approaching even the little things we are doing to take the grid to the next step we wanted is just not thinking about coordinated responses and coming back to this idea of how do we build out the grid and power lines to make sure that we have access to resources when stuff goes wrong, because things will go wrong. And no matter how much planning we put into it, we won't think of everything. So how do we give ourselves additional options and a different additional resources to tap into? But I just, I come back to, I just keep coming back to the human side of this. Like, this isn't something we just watch on TV, like watching the people who are being affected by it and seeing the numbers come in of how many people have died in these heat waves. It's just really sobering. And I hope we take it seriously. Yeah, one of the things I really wanted to echo, Melissa, was this issue of transmission and that Texas is so isolated um, in its system and not able to connect. But so are some of the other states, like the south part of MISO, the you know mid-continent system operator, is not as connected to the northern part of MISO as it should be. And the, and the MISO south states were also having blackouts at the same time that Texas was. So we need more connectivity across the country. We need to connect the MISO regions. We need to connect MISO to PJM, where a lot of the load is, and in the Midwest, where you can you have all these clean energy resources that you can move around. And I think that you're right that that will not only give us more tools to use, but actually help people. Absolutely. I mean, I can remember we were publishing a paper that came out in December talking about existing authorities we have to build out the grid. And as we were writing it, it was one of those recognizing that the conversation had shifted across the U.S. to this, well, you know, yeah, we think a super grid across the whole country, that would be great, but we're never going to do that. So let's just focus on what we can develop locally. And the idea is like, look, in any of these scenarios, whether you're going to net zero or decarbonizing to a certain place or just keeping the lights on with existing resources, transmission helps so much. We should be investing more in it and we should be looking at what makes sense in terms of new lines and then you know, making the existing lines more, you know, flexible and robust so they can help us out um, and deploying our resources so that they use what we have and what we will build in the future as effectively as possible. So thinking about storage and not just thinking about it as being next to a wind turbine or a solar panel, but thinking about where else in the grid it would make sense to put it so that we have a more reliable system and we have a more resilient system when these extreme things happen. So that stat that you mentioned at the beginning of the show, that outages in the U.S. have increased 67% since the year 2000, is stunning. And in the wake of all these distribution investments after the Obama-era stimulus package, we were told that it was going to improve reliability and reduce outages. And, you know, in the 90s, there was a, a, a dearth of investment in the distribution infrastructure, utilities really underinvested, and that's why we started to see outages go up in the early 2000s, but we were promised that that would change, and it hasn't changed. It's gotten worse. Is that a result of a lack of investment or the wrong kind of investment or just that these investments are not keeping up with these extreme weather events fueled by climate change? What do you all, how do you all read that number? 
So I do think we have underinvested in certain parts of the grid. One is the is transmission. It's been really hard to build transmission, uh, regional, you know, regional tie lines. The other piece is you know we've we've invested and the Obama stimulus bill invested a lot in advanced metering infrastructure. Well, well, that's great if you have a meter, but if you can't connect that into the rest of the system to where the generator is, that whole distribution side of the system has been vastly under invested in. And then all of the connective tissue, which is what I call all those those things, those the digitization, the the equipment that allows things to flow better and to share information and to move uh, and to recover quickly. I think that is where we have not invested as much as we should. And it's been really hard because utilities don't get, you know, don't get paid, they get paid for assets in the ground rather than assets in the cloud. But I still think that that those are pieces that really we need, we have a lot of work to do on those. Yeah, and I'll snag a quote from I think it's Daniel Cohen over at Rice, he's an associate professor in civil and environmental engineering. And if I paraphrase it, it was something to the effect of, you know, the power system, and he was referring to Texas, but the power system is has been trying to just have enough power to get by. So cutting corners and just making sure it could squeak by, which is okay until a couple of things break and go wrong. And then it goes from being, you know, cost effective and lowest cost to being really, really expensive, um, both in terms of, you know, direct costs because things break, um, but also cost of human life and human health. So it's obvious we need to do more. And we also need to think differently, as we talked about earlier. Yeah, uh, I, I, that's a good place to end it. I actually have that quote from Daniel Cohen up here. I, I pasted it into my show notes because Did I, I thought say it was it right? good. <laughs> you got it close. He okay. compared the situation okay. in Texas with someone trying to save money by going without insurance. And he said it's really cheap until it's not. Ah, yeah. But I think you got to the heart of it. We're seeing mm-hmm. that play out season after season. The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is the leading global supplier of inverter solutions for renewables. This year, SunGrow is also supplying more than 1.5 gigawatt hours of energy storage technology to projects across North America. Among these projects is the Chisholm Grid Battery Energy Storage Project in Fort Worth, Texas, which is owned by Astral Electricity and was developed by Able Grid and MAP. Along with the lithium-ion batteries, Chisholm Grid will use SunGrow's advanced converters and controls in a long-term services contract to meet the growing ERCOT market conditions while reducing operating costs and extending the lifespan of the assets. And SunGrow isn't just supporting energy providers and Fortune 500 companies with their deep decarbonization goals, it's also making those commitments for itself. In the last year, SunGrow joined RE100 with a commitment to switch its power needs to 100% renewable energy by 2028. To learn more, email info at sungrowamericas.com. We're also brought to you by SNC Electric. Power-related challenges and opportunities are becoming more complex. Reliability concerns, rising energy costs, cybersecurity risks, they can all jeopardize operations, while new technologies like electric vehicles and microgrids offer great potential. If you're a utility or commercial enterprise today, you're faced with a critical decision. Select a conventional wired approach or respond in a non-conventional way. Even with dedicated in-house resources, arriving at a conclusion can be an uncertain and time-consuming process. You can evaluate these big decisions more efficiently and with more confidence by working with an experienced integrator like SNC Electric Company. SNC will be with you every step of the way, thoroughly working through your challenges and reviewing your energy needs to offer an expanded set of solutions developed specifically for you. Learn more at snc.com/nwa. Let's turn to a video that is putting ExxonMobil on the defensive. Exxon is one of the most powerful figures in climate delay. 
2015 investigation showed the company's scientists knew very clearly about the threat of climate change, and the company worked to cover it up for decades. And while other oil companies have started to embrace offshore wind and geothermal, batteries, hydrogen, clean energy services, Exxon has spent tens of millions of dollars on advertising about how it's going to use algae to create new fuels. And if you're wondering and you haven't followed algae, it's basically been a big bust, and Exxon continues to tout it and invest in it. According to the Union of Concerned Scientists, Exxon has given $30 million to conservative groups, groups that are explicitly uh, pushing climate denial, like the Heartland Institute and the Heritage Foundation, and that's just the money that can be tracked. There's also lots more dark money sloshing around. And in a video recently published by Greenpeace, Keith McCoy, who's a senior director of federal relations at ExxonMobil, admits that. Here's a little clip from the video. Did we aggressively fight yeah. against um, uh, some of the science? Yeah. Uh, yes. Did we join some of these shadow groups yeah. uh, to work against uh, some of the early efforts? Yes, that's yeah. true. Uh, but there's nothing, there's nothing illegal about that. Yeah. Uh, you know, we were looking out for our investments. We mm. were looking out for our, our, in, uh, uh, our shareholders. So that was recorded by Greenpeace. They convinced McCoy he was being headhunted by another company. He opened up during this fake interview, having no idea it was being recorded. Uh, he also bragged about Exxon's efforts to lobby against climate provisions in Biden's infrastructure bill. He talked about working with Senator Manchin, the Democratic kingmaker who could make or break Biden's climate priorities. And he said a carbon tax is basically hopeless, which is kind of why Exxon is backing it. He, he, he talked about why it is good public messaging, but why it'll probably never get done in Washington. You know, we know these companies spend millions of dollars on lobbying. We know their history. But what does this recent admission tell us about the climate politics of today at a time when oil companies are trying to convince the public that they are changing and actually making investments in new energy technologies? So, Catherine, what, what's your reaction to the video? Yeah, my first reaction was, I know that guy. I know Keith McCoy. He he used to work for Johnson Controls. And so he was in energy efficiency a lot. He was doing a lot of that work. And I, I reached out to Alexander Kaufman from HuffPost, who wrote uh, a really good piece about this. And, you know, we, he helped me kind of parse two different things. One is the fact that Keith thought he was being interviewed by a corporate headhunter in Dubai. And so what he was positioning himself was, you know, I'm a really good lobbyist. I have influenced. I'm effective. He talked a lot about the corporate tax rate, you know, things that any corporation would be interested in having an, a lobbyist that would know the ropes and understand access and influence and you know how you become part of a group and and, and you exert pressure. Um, and so there's there's that piece, which is just the context and what he thought he was talking about. And then the second piece is really about the content of what Exxon's been doing, which of course, you know, advocates uh, for climate solutions have long feared, you know, thanks to Exxon's history since the 1970s. And since uh, over 50% of emissions have been created since the 1990s, um, that really, they have not been doing what they say they were going to do, or they haven't believed what they have said. And part of the problem and the danger in that, that Alexander was talking about is that while 
Exxon was talking about a carbon price, maybe knowing that it would never happen, that that puts us at this place where we're trying to choose between, oh, do we want this disingenuous carbon price, which is a market mechanism, or do we want regulation and investment in clean tech? And and the danger of that is, of course, is that you're forcing yourself to choose rather than doing everything. And I think Alexander wanted to point out that it's really important to note that whether or not Exxon believed it, that a carbon price may be something you'd want to do anyway. And the issue is, you know, how do you make sure you can get things done um, and maintain the public trust? And certainly Exxon has not done that. Melissa, what was your reaction to the video? Yeah, so in the video, I mean, McCoy speaks about efforts to aggressively fight against science and early efforts towards pushing towards decarbonization, right? Do I agree with that approach? And would I ever do something similar? No, I'm I'm an engineer. I follow the data and the evidence, and the evidence is really clear on this. Um, and it, I believe that we should do everything that we can. So what Catherine was just saying, it's not an or proposition. I mean, we need to throw the kitchen sink at this if we want to mitigate and adapt to climate change if for no other reason than to protect our own health. But these comments and the comments that McCoy made, we should put them in context, absolutely, as Catherine just did. We also should realize that it's highlighting something that is still really important, which is that we do not have the right incentive structures. I think his quote was something to the effect of, there's nothing illegal about you know what they did. We were looking out for our investors and our shareholders. That's not incorrect. And you can get into the argument about whether it's ethically correct, sure. But really what it highlights to me is just how important it is that we fundamentally shift our incentive structures so that it supports what we want that it supports mitigating climate change, that it supports reducing pollution, that it supports these things. And until we do that, we're going to have people who are doing what, you know, they're paid to do, what their jobs incentivize them to do. In this case, you know, protecting investments and shareholders. So that's something that I took away from it. A few things stood out to me. One is I I think that he's revealing truths about Exxon's strategy, but there's definitely a bit of braggadocio here, right? So you have to be able to um, parse those two things. But I was really struck by his use of the language shadow groups, that that he bragged about using shadow groups. You know, we often affiliate that language with environmental groups and progressive groups who are talking about dark money and, and shadow uh, influence. And it sounds so dark and insidious. And in fact, he's using that language. And that just really stood out to me. Um, I also was struck by the fact that, that the CEO of Exxon came out almost immediately and said that these comments don't reflect the company's stance. And I don't know that we would have seen that kind of response from Exxon in previous years, which probably does speak to its understanding of the public perception on climate change and whether or not it's purely for PR reasons or a legitimate attempt to um, to do something to reorient its business it's striking that top leadership tried to distance itself almost immediately. The question I have is, Catherine, on the immediate politics, Keith bragged about pushing influence to get a lot of the climate provisions taken out of the infrastructure negotiations. And of course, now that the the negotiations were split up into two tracks and the climate stuff is going to come separately. And so this current infrastructure bill is much, uh, it's a just much lower number and there's not much climate stuff in there. Do you attribute, is that just braggadocio or do you attribute lobbying efforts from companies like Exxon in, 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 in making that happen? 
Yeah, I think certainly the bipartisan infrastructure deal, you have to appeal to both sides of the aisle. It was like a very much of a middle of the road proposal about roads and bridges. So sure, I think, you know, Exxon has to be aware of the politics right now and the fact that there's a Democrat in the White House who ran on climate change and that the leadership in the House and Senate, while it's very closely divided, is all Democrats. And so they have to work with whomever they can and make a difference that way. What Exxon has been able to do, though, is is make themselves seem like they're above the fray while getting money to groups where they don't have to disclose that they're members, and especially these regional groups where they re- those groups really are hurting state-by-state policies that Exxon would never publicly say as a corporation that they believe, and yet they're funding those on the ground so that they don't have to worry about it as you know they can continue their business as usual. And you know, part of the tragedy here is that if they actually did what they said they're doing and investing in all the solutions that that industry really does need to invest in, like CCS, if they actually put their money where their mouth is, they could make a difference. And part of the problem is that they're they're trying to get it both ways. They're trying to win the PR wars while not actually investing and doing what they say they need to do. Any thoughts on the carbon tax stuff? That 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 they're just using the carbon tax as a PR tactic and don't actually believe it will pass. So one thing that I'll say about the carbon tax thing is this is not the first time that I've heard this statement or these statements about carbon tax being something that won't get passed. And the word tax, you know, is going to turn away a lot of people, a lot of voters, and therefore a lot of those, the representatives of those voters. And so the word is charged. Like I've heard that before. But You know, I think that it's back to the context of this conversation. When we're looking at it, this person is trying to sell themselves for a job. They think they're speaking to a headhunter. And so you got to overlay the whole thing with that. So do I think he's he's wrong? No, but I simply don't think it's that simple. Like, it's not that simple. Yeah. And the, the biggest issue, and this is what Alexander Kaufman was saying, is that this is this is an argument that causes wedges between different sides of the argument. The the side that wants to do CCS and a price on carbon, um, nuclear versus uh, renewables and distributed generation. And, and, and instead of trying to say, all right, what are all the things we have to do to solve this problem and let's get them done? And back in the Obama days during the Clean Power Plan, there was this whole initiative to put a price on carbon. And they said, well, if we do this, then we don't need the Clean Power Plan. We can just, but that was all we had was EPA being able to have the ability to regulate carbon emissions. And uh, so it became this either or thing when right now we're in a crisis. (laughs) And as we talked about in that first story, people are dying. Um, 37% of heat related deaths are tied to climate change. We should be throwing everything we can at this and not trying to create wedges, depending on what what structure we want to create. We, I think we need to do them all. And the reason why I wanted to highlight this story is because we're making genuine progress under this administration in reprioritizing climate change. Uh, oil majors all around the world have made some pretty big investments in a variety of clean energy technologies, whether it be you know, deep offshore wind or geothermal or now starting to be hydrogen. But that 
we can get excited about some of those changes, uh, but we have to remind ourselves that this is the way that politics is done, and this is the way that a lot of these companies are operating behind the scenes. And so we have to continually remind ourselves of that as we try to make even tougher choices and faster choices on climate change. Yeah, and they should be held accountable. I mean, they're the reason we're in this situation, so they should definitely be held accountable. But we also need to make sure that the conversation is really around the crisis and how to manage the crisis in addition to having polluters pay. So uh, Alexander was saying he was just watching CNN this morning where Jen Psaki, um, the president's um, press secretary, was being asked by John Berman of CNN not about the Pacific Northwest heat dome or about Texas or about New York or about any of the grid issues. But instead, he was asking about the gas prices, gas prices going up a few cents. And what are they going to do about those? And, you know, that is not the emergency, people. Let's go to our third topic. So let's talk about using fossil fuel infrastructure differently. We've talked extensively about electrification on this show in recent months. We recently had Saul Griffith of Rewiring America, who laid out his case for using electrons instead of molecules for cleaning up the energy system. But what's the case to be made for using molecules, hydrogen, biomethane, synthetic renewable fuels, in our existing gas pipeline infrastructure? Melissa's research team at Columbia asked this question. It's a relevant one for a couple reasons. One is that we could use infrastructure spending right now that we're talking about to modernize pipelines and ensure that we have fewer methane leaks. And there's now more interest in alternatives to fossil gas from the gas companies. Dozens of energy firms are now testing hydrogen or biogas in their pipeline networks. So where do pipelines fit in to a low carbon energy system? Melissa, what prompted you to ask this question? It was a series of interesting conversations that started with Erin Blinn and I. She heads our natural gas program, and I head our power sector program. We were talking through just the tremendous investments that we need in new infrastructure in order to transition to a net zero economy. Just huge numbers, tons of steel, tons of stuff needing to get built. And we were talking through these interdependencies and infrastructure, and we said, you know what? What we see in these scenarios, whether it's put out by Jesse Jenkins in his net zero study or Berkeley in their 2035 study or any of them, International Energy Agency, the global ones, all, all of them, is that we use gaseous fuels in the future. Pipelines are cheap ways to move gas. And furthermore, if we're looking at the urgency of the transition and how quickly we need to do it, it felt like there was a role for existing infrastructure. And so much of the discussion had been around the grid and transitioning the grid or investing in the grid, the electricity grid. And we said, what about the gas grid? Like the stuff that's already built. So this research focused in on the existing infrastructure we already have in the ground. And the question, because we didn't have the answer when we started was, could this actually help accelerate progress? Could it support and accelerate progress to net zero? And the answer appeared to be yes. Yes, it could. And I'll say in presenting it with a lot of different groups, we get a bunch of, of pushback. Um, the stuff you highlighted around it locking in fossil fuel futures, um, how it's counter to electrification. Um, and I would say like, this is not a choice. Like we're not presenting a choice between natural gas or fossil gas and electrification or between fossil gas and a, net, and a zero carbon fuels. Like we're saying, how do we reuse and in a way recycle the infrastructure we've already permitted and built? Um, to actually have it be what we want it to be in the future to, and to have it be, you know, safe as it as it continues to operate and support the energy system. So that's really where it came from. So what would upgrading the pipeline infrastructure 
look like? What would you have to do? Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's a lot of different things that you would want to do. I'll say like at a high level, if you look at our current pipeline infrastructure, the continental US has something like 2.5 million miles of pipeline infrastructure, which is, uh, I needed something to put that in context when we were talking through the distance. And it's around six and a half times the length of the interstate highway system. It's huge. It's massive. It serves 70 million households, you know, almost 6 million commercial customers, you know, 180,000 factories, et cetera. 1,800 power plants get gas from this thing. And since the 70s, we've spent something like half a trillion dollars on the pipeline infrastructure for gas. And, you know, when you look at the system, the gas grid is not just all one material. It wasn't built all at the same time. There's a lot of stuff going on. And so there's some low hanging fruit that we can do to reduce emissions in the near term, like replacing old cast iron pipe, which is really leaky and also is not good for putting hydrogen through because of technical considerations like embrittlement. So there's clear things that we can see about how we're already replacing pipe with these PE, these plastic pipes. We can accelerate that. And there seem to be some win-win things. But we, in terms of policy recommendations in the paper, divide it into two buckets. What can we do to reduce cumulative emissions, like now, reduce leaks? And then what can we do to make sure that what we are putting in the ground as we continue to invest in this grid that we rely on, what can we be doing to make sure that those investments lead us to the net zero future we want and accelerate our progress instead of you know becoming this stranded asset that we spend a ton of money on and we're just not going to use and then have to build something else? Yeah, so it was a really interesting paper. I was really glad to read it, and you all did great work. And I I like the notion of using something that has already been built and trying to use it better and more efficiency. I do have some skepticism about what's going to be pumped through it. So when you look at something like hydrogen, that has different, there are different types of hydrogen, gray hydrogen, which is basically just, you know, reform steam methane that causes uh, per year CO2 combined uh, UK and Indonesia. So a lot of CO2 comes from gray hydrogen, Uh, blue hydrogen, which is basically using captured uh, CCS to produce hydrogen, and then green hydrogen, which is actually something I uh, really pushed hard to make sure was in um, a paper that was um, printed in Scientific American on the top 10 new technologies for 2020. And I I really pushed hard for green hydrogen to be in it. Um, But the reality is it's three times more expensive than natural gas. It's, you know, requires 300% more electric capacity to produce it. Um, It it requires much three times more space in the pipelines to get it through. And I just am skeptical that the gas industry is going to invest in something that has that many barriers. The the projects that are ongoing now are not from the natural gas industry. They're from the offshore wind industry and and other renewable players that are trying to figure out how do they use excess renewables to produce something that can be useful. And so I just, I would like to dig in a little bit on how you think the natural gas industry is really going to move forward in a low carbon future. Yeah, I mean, it's a series of great questions. And like at a high level, we don't reach net zero unless we make a choice to go to net zero. Like it's at least we don't make it on any timeline that we're remotely discussing if we wanna mitigate the worst effects of climate change. If we wanna meet Paris Agreement targets, like we need policies that say, hey, this is the direction of travel, everyone get on this road, (laughs) like we're headed there and we're headed there more quickly than we are right now. Um, So when it comes to pipelines, I mean, at a high level, if we want to use increasingly low carbon fuels, 
not just in the gas network, but across the entire energy system, there needs to be incentive structures to support that. So that's the, you know, we all know that answer here. So, you know, there's that. But what I'll say is a lot of investment is going into the gas grid right now. And one of the recommendations we say is like, how about we accelerate the pace of replacing remaining cast iron pipelines? They're a small percentage of the infrastructure, but they're responsible for this hugely outsized percentage of methane leaks. And they're also happen to be incompatible transporting things like hydrogen. We talk about beyond hydrogen fuels. There's a lot of different things we could put in there, renewable gas, synthetic methane, all these different types of things. But, you know, a mandate for replacing these aging pipelines and doing it more quickly, that creates jobs and that reduces cumulative emissions. And if we do it in a way that is thoughtful about where we want to be in the future, then, uh, you know, we put in materials we have now, we put in these plastic pipes and we set ourselves up for more success in the future. The other thing that I'll mention is actually a blog post that came out highlighting a white paper from uh, the Haas School at Berkeley just within the past like 24 hours. And it was talking about what happens as we transition away from gas and we'll skip if that's fossil or zero carbon or whatever it is. But even in the Berkeley 2035 report, they still are using gaseous fuels in, in the future and they're still using it for the last 10% of electricity generation. And the idea that they highlight is, look, even if we massively reduce the amount we need, we don't walk away from this infrastructure. There's still stuff that needs to be passed through it, and it may be highly seasonal in nature when we need backup power, but we still need this infrastructure to move it around. It is still more cost effective than putting this gas in like a truck and moving it around that way. That's hugely expensive. So we need to think seriously about how we use our pipeline infrastructure in the future. And one big motivator for me personally of writing this paper is I felt like it was just becoming this polarized a fossil fuel touched it so we can't talk about it anymore. We got to walk away. And I was like, no, it's existing infrastructure. I want to rethink that conversation and think about can it support me in getting to my goal, which is net zero. And if it can, great. How do we set up the policies and regulations to support us getting there? Do I think those policies and regulations are set up today to get us there? Absolutely not. But the first part of getting us there is thinking about it and not just walking away from something that could be very valuable and help us make progress. And, and as I'm listening to this, I am thinking about the grid. And if we talked about building a national high voltage transmission system across the U.S. 20 years ago, then we would probably be supporting more coal plants, more gas plants, very little renewables. And it was only the development of state level renewable energy targets and federal, better federal regulations on mercury and air toxics and uh, the combination of those regulations and those policy pushes for more renewables help get us to a place where if we built that, that transmission system today, we'd be connecting a lot of renewables to load centers around the country. So that's kind of what I'm hearing you say, Melissa, is that uh, maybe today the gas companies, there's not a lot of these uh, renewable fuels in place, but it's possible to update the infrastructure to support them. And we need the, those other policy tools in place, like we saw in the electricity system, to get more of those fuels in the system. Yeah, and we've got at least, what is it, two dozen or so energy firms across the U.S. like looking into how can they produce hydrogen and you know to what degree can we use it in existing natural gas pipes and in our boilers and our power plants, like how far can we go with it? And another thing that we highlight in this is we're not talking about 
whole hog pulling every single pipe in the entire country out of the ground and replacing it with something like it's about being targeted as well. So there's parts of the country, whether you're focused in on, you know, Houston, and there was a, you know, big event that happened recently talking about net zero industrial hubs in Houston. And there's a paper from Julio Friedman at the center um, about this topic. It's like, well, maybe that's a great target area to think about this. And some parts of the Northeast where we have more of these cast iron pipes and also some industrial centers, like, could that be a good first step? I think for me, it's just about how do we make progress and we need it across the board, back to the kitchen sink thing. We need we need all the things. We don't just need one. And so how can, and I'll say when we started the research, the question was, can the pipeline network help us? Would it help us? And the answer seems unequivocally yes. So then it's like, what do we need to do with our policies and regulations? As you said, Stephen, not just at the federal level, at the state level as well. Yeah, um, I think one of your colleagues, Renee Cho from Columbia Climate School, wrote a piece in January uh, titled Why We Need Green Hydrogen. And she talks about you know, needing R&D and innovation dollars and investment tax credit or production tax credit, but then regulatory standards. And standards need to be put into place um, to regulate things like ammonia and and products that are used by other industries that the natural gas applies to um, steam and thermal generation and um, you know that are that are used in industrial processes and all of these pieces have got to be um, we have to put rules around them to say you can't do this or the industry has absolutely no reason to change. So I do think you do need an incentive structure um, but you also need regulation to say, we no longer accept certain outcomes um, that produce CO2 and methane um, and any other sort of pollutants um, in order to really, I would think, change the way the industry operates. Oh, no, I just one more thing was we also need to focus on what the end goal is. Like the end goal is not getting 50% of the way to net zero. It's getting all the way there. It's about pulling all the emissions down. And when you do that, Moving away from this idea of, oh, wind is the cheapest, solar is the cheapest, you know, XYZ is the cheapest. It's like, what's the cheapest total transition to get the entire system to zero? And then how do we set up an incentive structure that allows all the technologies, all the fuels that we need to keep the cost of that transition low? How do we let them have a place to play? The goal is net zero. It's not some halfway down the road part of that. When you're looking at net zero, it actually clarifies things a lot about what you need and how you need to set up your structure, including your infrastructure. All right, well, let's go to free electrons now. Melissa, what is your your free electron? What's keeping you occupied, intrigued, interested? Oh my gosh, can I share a joke (laughs) as part of my free electron? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Please do. (laughs) I stole this from Q Lee, who's our our head of communications and outreach at CJET. So what did the limestone say to the geologist? (laughs) What? Don't take me for granted. Um, sorry, it's just so bad. It's so great. Um, but we're talking about all the CCUS and pipelines, and I'm thinking about stones and granite. So I had to share that one. Okay, so beyond terrible dad jokes, my free electron for today is actually an article from 2015 in Power Engineering. I was trying to figure out when the first natural gas power plant was built in the US and globally. Like, we used it to a lot. Of, we used natural gas to do a lot of things, but I was trying to figure out when the first, like, what we consider a modern power plant was built. And I ran across this article, and it was talking about the history of natural gas use. And I found this quote. I'm just going to read it. 
Um, and I think we'll put a link to this article in the show notes if that's cool, Stephen. But it says natural gas was also used more deliberately. As early as 500 or 600 BC, the Chinese were transporting natural gas through bamboo pipelines, burning it to desalinate seawater and render it drinkable. I just, I had no idea. <laughs> and I do energy for my living. And I just was like, wait, what? Um, but it's a cool, it's a cool article. It steps you all through like the history of it. And it's aged well. So well done by Tim Miser, the article of it and associate editor of their over there at Power Engineering. I just, I'm picturing now all these bamboo pipelines and uh, I just wanted to mention it. Yes. And bamboo is indestructible. <laughs> I've tried. It is completely indestructible. So yes, you should use <laughs> yeah, that for your new pipelines, Melissa. <laughs> I wonder if it can move hydrogen. We'll have to find out. I'm, I'm, joking i think mostly <laughs> so there you go <laughs> i saw you tweet that out and i was blown away when i read the article it's just nifty and speaking of your other free electron how do you know a joke becomes a dad joke i don't know when it becomes a parent oh, oh my god that's god. so bad that's so bad oh. <laughs> i started a bad trend i'm sorry Catherine. i'm sorry Steve. <laughs> i got, I got nothing. so good <laughs> Catherine, what's your free electron? Yeah, well, mine is an article, a serious article. Um, it's Renewable <laughs> Energy World. Um, it was a piece about a vehicle-to-grid pilot that National Grid is doing with Electric Fraud Frog Company, which is a climate tech startup that is working with Fermata, which is a V2G company, and using a Nissan Leaf to back up the Burrillville Wastewater Treatment Facility in Rhode Island. So they're trying to use EVs uh, to deal with summer peaks in New England. And I thought this was super interesting. Um, I'm dying to see where this goes. I just am thinking about all those F-150s out where I am this summer and how we can replace them with F-150 Lightnings and then power everybody. Can I say, Catherine, you just reminded me of, I think, the funnest video I've watched all week, which is um, Gina McCarthy and uh, Secretary Granholm in the Chevy Bolt. I rewatched that a few times. It made me laugh. Powered by Sunshine. Just so good. Oh, my God. Yes. Hilarious. Yes, yes, they're awesome. So great. I haven't seen that one, but I, I love those two. And those two together are, are a great pair. So I, I think it's something I got to watch. All right, I got a few here. One is that Meet the Press and CNN's Reliable Sources just had really strong climate segments with some heavy hitters in the climate movement that uh, just were fantastic. And we want to see more of that on television journalism because it's still you know, really lacking, but the the Sunday shows and the weekend shows are still extremely influential on the political conversation and in driving news cycles or reflecting the news cycle. So it was really nice to see um, some, some, some major climate players on those shows. I also noticed that the Department of Energy's Office of Fossil Energy is now the Office of Fossil Energy and Carbon Management, which speaks to the new uh, priorities within that office at the Department of Energy. So a positive signal. We'll see what comes out of there. And the last is that I saw this report from the Office of Budget Responsibility from the UK showing that the investment needed to meet the UK's climate targets through 2050 would be equivalent to what they spent on the COVID crisis. And I just think that's like really astonishing to to think about because 
we're still in a world where the cost to do something about climate change is pretty reasonable <laughs> compared to the cost of doing nothing. And so that is something that a lot of people can relate to now. This is something that uh, journalists or climate communicators need to emphasize more of because all of a sudden we're spending trillions of dollars on the health and economic response to the COVID crisis. And these are dollar levels that were previously kind of incomprehensible or deemed too high, but now they're being deployed and they're suddenly real for people and creating real programs to keep people afloat during a hard time or to keep people protected. And so we should seize this moment in recognizing that the cost to actually adhere to national targets around the world is very low still compared to the cost by 2030 or 2040 or 2050 in, in, in doing little or not doing enough. So I want to reemphasize that point because of what we're all going through right now. Yeah, I love that. I wish I could uh, just be affirmed that we aren't all just carpe diem people and uh, aren't able to see into the future, but I hope you're right. I think that's going to do it for the show. Dr. Melissa Lott, thank you so much for joining us. What a treat. Thanks for having me. It was fun to hang out with y'all for a bit. Dr. Melissa Lott is a senior research scholar and the director of research at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. She's also the host of The Big Switch, and you can check out the whole first season. We've dropped five episodes, and if you're keen on learning more about uh, grid stresses and going deeper on what we talked about in the first part of the program, we tell the blow-by-blow account of what happened in Texas and then come out of that story in Texas and talk about what it means for how to build the grid of the future to make it more reliable and low carbon. So uh, so thanks for being here, Melissa. And Catherine Hamilton is my regular co-host. Such a treat to talk to you. I hope you enjoy the rest of your time in the mountains. Go say hi to everybody at the bodega. <laughs> Thank you. I sure will. It's been a pleasure. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Energy Gang. We are a production of Postscript Media and Wood McKenzie. And we are so delighted to have you with us every week. If you want to give us some show ideas or respond to anything that we discussed on this episode, hit us up on Twitter. You can find all of us there. We're all very active, and you can also find the Energy Gang there. And of course, we ask it every single time, but it's true every single time. Giving us a rating and review will help us find new listeners, so please do that. And we will catch you next week. Thanks for being here.